I am a grateful recovering alcoholic. My name is Christy. Hi, everybody. I'm really delighted. I am a grateful recovering alcoholic. My name is Christy Miller. Hi, everybody. I'm really delighted to be here tonight. I'll be more delighted in about an hour, but I, I really am, am glad to be here, and I want to thank the committee for inviting me and uh, putting us up in these lovely accommodations. The food is great. The fruit basket is wonderful, and, uh, and we're, we're having a wonderful time. I, Jim and I usually come to these conferences together. Jim is my husband, and he's been in Al-Anon quite a number of years now, and we usually come together, but he couldn't come with me this weekend because of some other commitments that we have coming up and going on. And we were sitting in our kitchen, uh, I guess about six weeks ago, talking about me coming here, and he was saying how disappointed he was that he wasn't going to be able to come, and it was sad I was going to have to come by myself. And Joyce, a young lady I'd met in the program a few months ago who lives in Atlanta and drives two hours down on the week, most weekends to spend time with us, was sitting at the table. And I turned to her and I said, Joyce, I said, my plane stops in Atlanta. You wouldn't want to get on it and fly over to Myrtle Beach with me. And it took her about two seconds to say, I'd love to. Let's go. <laughs> so I want to thank Joyce for, for coming with you. I have to tell you a little bit about Joyce. Uh, Joyce and I met back in May, I guess it was, April or May, uh, at a conference up in uh, Tennessee called Mont Eagle. And I'd spoken at that conference, and afterwards uh, Joyce had come up and, and uh, we'd started talking and sharing with each other. And as we left the conference, she said, can I call you? And I said, sure. And people have asked me that on occasion before, but she's the first one who's ever called. <laughs> and uh, I can tell you that today, AT&T and MCI are just delighted that we have gotten together because they're doing a grand business. But Joyce started calling, and we started talking, and we got closer and closer together. And finally, one weekend, I invited her to come down and spend the weekend with us. And as, I, as she agreed and I got ready for her to come down, I went to Jim and I, I said, you know, Jim, I'm really nervous about this. And he said, why? And I said, well, you know, Joyce and I have been talking and she's heard my story and we've been talking on the phone. And, you know, I'm really worried that she's going to come out down here and find out that I can talk the talk, but I'm not walking the walk. That, you know, I painted this picture for her, that my life is one way and she's going to come down and look at it and go, uh-uh, you know, it's not that way at all. So I was a little nervous about it. And she came down and... Well, the best I can say is she keeps coming back. So, that uh, Joyce, I want you to stand up so everybody knows who you are and they can come meet you after the meeting and say thank you for coming with me. <laughs> I am from Columbus, Georgia. My home group is the Starmount Group. I bring you greetings from them, but I didn't tell them I was coming here. Uh, <laughs> I didn't tell them because I was scared that if they found out I was going to come carrying my message to you, they'd vote for me not to come and send someone else. Uh, but it's a wonderful group, and without them, I don't think that I would be here today. I, uh, there are a lot of you in this room. I'm <laughs> a lot. I have, to, I have to tell you a story. It's a, it's a story. The moral of the story is beware who you sponsor. Um, I went to a meeting a few years ago in Macon, Georgia. They had asked me to come over and share, and I'd been over to Macon before. And I knew this group. I knew it well and had been to quite a few meetings there. I knew the room. I knew the people. And so I had this picture in my mind of where I was going and who was going to be there and kind of how many were going to be there. And I was looking forward to seeing some old friends. And I took with me a girl that I, who was one month sober that day, and I'd been sponsoring her most of that month. And 
we got over to Macon, and when we drove up to the church, they directed me into a different door than we usually went in. And we walked into the room, and it was a huge room, kind of like this, except it was filled with tables. And people were sitting there eating and drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. And there were about 450 people instead of 35. And it floored me. I mean, y'all, it absolutely floored me. I stood there and said, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I can't do this. And, uh, I, and the girl, looked, Robin, looked at me, and she said, what's the matter? And I said, I didn't know I was going to be speaking to 400 people. And she looked at me again. She said, what? You're going to tell a different story to 400 than you would to 35? <laughs> That's why you should be aware of who you sponsor. <laughs> I'd tell you a little bit about my family. Uh, the, the family that, uh, that I live with is, is Jim, my husband, like I said. And Jim's been in Al-Anon since 1979. Uh, he has been a very active member of Al-Anon since 1979. I am very grateful for that. It has, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that our marriage probably would not have survived without his uh, recovery in Al-Anon. He takes his program really seriously and he takes his program very joyously. And we do a lot of laughing together and crying together and sharing together. And our lives today are nothing like they were, you know, how we planned them on our wedding day. It is absolutely nothing like we thought it would be. And yet it is so wonderful that it is uh, it is joyous to get up every morning, and he's a very special man, and those of y'all who know him um, know that, um, and I love him very deeply. As I'm kind of like Lib, I think he's the best-looking thing that ever walked in the door. It, uh, she thinks that about Bob. I think that about Jim. We have three daughters. Uh, our oldest daughter is just about 15. Our, young, our middle daughter is 11, and our youngest daughter is 8. And as I was telling somebody today, I certainly think one of the, the biggest joy of my sobriety is that I get to be a mother to those children, and I think it's a privilege and an honor. We really have a good time together. Um, sometimes we don't see eye to eye with each other, but we have a good time, and it's, it's just really wonderful to be there for them and do homework with them and drive them places and laugh with them and cry with them. Uh, my favorite story about my oldest daughter is that when I, the last time I was in treatment, uh, I was gone about three months, and I'd been home from treatment about six months and was sober, and uh, Ray was about seven or eight years old. It was very hot. It was summer, and um, it was the day after we'd had a party. Now, the night before we'd had this party, that <laughs> it was amazing because Jim and I hadn't had a party in our home in a long time, and we had decided at, at this point we need to have a party for some of his business associates. And so we planned the party and the menu and whatnot, and then we had a big discussion about whether it would be appropriate to serve alcohol at this party or not. You know, what's the right thing to do? Well, after much discussion, we decided that it might be appropriate to serve some beer and wine at the party. And it was Jim's job to plan that and go get it and buy it and serve it. And he went that afternoon and went out and bought some beer and wine, came home, put it in the refrigerator, and uh, I thought I was so cool. I mean, I'd ignored it for two hours, didn't even look in there. And, uh, and after a couple of hours, I had to peek and see what it looked like, you know, to have some booze in my refrigerator. And I looked in there, and I looked again, and he bought a half gallon of wine and a six-pack of beer. And, uh, you know, I said, Jim, this is an afternoon snack. I mean, who do you expect to satisfy with this? He said, you know, this is my responsibility. Leave me alone. Well, to my amazement, I mean, y'all, we had 14 people to dinner. We had, we had stuff left over. But I don't understand, but... But we did, and uh, 
So it was the next afternoon on this hot July afternoon that, that my daughter and I were standing at the refrigerator looking for something to drink. And as we looked in there, Ray saw the beer and wine, and she said, Mom, what are you going to do with that? And I said, oh, I could drink it. And she looked at me and she said, oh, that's not a good idea, Mom. And I said, why not? And she said, if you drink it, you won't be home for Christmas. <laughs> that daughter's now in Alateen, and it's, it's really exciting to see her become a membership, a member of this fellowship and, uh, and come to meetings with us and share with us. It's a lot of fun. Uh, my youngest daughter, I have stories about my middle daughter, but I'm going to tell this story about my youngest daughter because she's this bright, vivacious, platinum blonde bundle of energy that enters a room and you can't miss her when she comes in. And she, uh, she is, is just a very lively child. And back in a couple of months ago at school, they had the day where they'd done their alcohol and drug education all week, and Friday came and they got red ribbons to wear that said that they were drug-free, and all the kids signed contracts that pledged that they're going to be drug and alcohol-free. And they signed these, and they bring them home to their parents. And it came time to sign the contract, and my little eight-year-old Jessica went up to her teacher and said, I can't sign that contract. And she just about died. She'd never had a child do that before. And, uh, and she looked down at her and she said, why not, Jessica? And she said, well, because I think when I get to be 21 years old or so, I might have a beer or two. And I thought, <laughs> and it had to be my child, you know. I've been in charge of the Drug and Alcohol Awareness Program. And I can't decide whether we're in big trouble or whether she just is inherently honest. I can't decide which is which, but she's a great girl. Uh, I had my first drink when I was about as old as my middle daughter, which was when I was about 11 or 12 years old. I had that drink because I was dying of curiosity. Uh, I had a friend over to spend the night, and we started talking about liquor and what it did. My parents were social drinkers. Her parents were social drinkers. And, uh, but because they drank socially, we saw a good bit of it, and we were real curious about what this stuff was all about. So we decided that night that we would test it out. And we went behind my father's bar, and we grabbed a bottle of scotch. We took it into my den. We opened it up, and we just downed it straight from the bottle. And it was terrible. uh, Going down, it was terrible. But once it hit, you know, the magic happened. Uh, I remember that night that we both got drunk. But Betsy got knee-walking, tongue-slurring, throwing-up kind of drunk. And I got that all-put-together-the-pieces-fit kind of drunk. And... You know, at 11 years old, I remember looking in the mirror at myself and seeing if I could talk without slurring my words and seeing if I looked drunk or was walking drunk and saw that I wasn't. And, uh, and I looked at Betsy and saw what kind of drunk she was. And right then, I vowed that although I knew alcohol was going to be an important part of my life, that I would never get me walking, tongue slurring, throwing up kind of drunk like Betsy was. I just intuitively knew that that was unacceptable for a woman to drink and get that way. And, uh, and I think deep down inside me, I also intuitively knew that if I drank and acted like that, somebody might tell me to quit. And I, just, I knew that this was going to be an important part of my life. But it really didn't begin affecting my life for quite a while. Uh, I was able to drink socially, and if you can call that successfully, without getting into too much trouble for, for quite a while. I graduated from high school. And, uh, and especially when I'm in this neck of the woods, I like to mention that uh, 
I came down to Duke University and, and went to school there, and that's where Jim and I met and fell in love. I always like to mention that, particularly during basketball season when we're ranked number one and <laughs> undefeated and all those things. I'm very proud of them. But uh, Jim and I met at Duke and began dating, and we fell in love, and, uh, and we got married after I graduated with a, a Bachelor of Science degree in nursing. And he went on to the Medical College of Georgia to go to medical school. So we got married and set out to have this wonderful life together. Uh, it was when we moved to Dallas, Texas for him to do his internship that my disease really reared its ugly head. And, uh, and, and when it walked in our front door, you know, our lives were changed forever. I, I changed instantly when certain things began to happen. What happened was I went to work as a head nurse on a cancer floor. I'd just given birth to Ray and had this little baby at home, and I had a husband who was working very hard across the city and, and came home every couple of days to crawl into bed and get some sleep and then go back to the hospital. And, uh, and I was all wrapped up in my job and my duties of motherhood and just kind of surviving. And for whatever reasons, I, I was restless, irritable, discontent, I know today. I, I didn't know what to call it then. But I, I remember thinking that I, I didn't feel right about everything and that I just knew that if I took some of those Tylenol with codeine in them off the medicine cart, that I'd probably feel better and I'd be able to cope with what was going on in my life better. And uh, so I did that, and it worked. And from that day on, I just kind of roared through, through my addiction. Uh, I progressed from that medicine cart into the narcotic cabinet at, uh, at an incredible pace, and I began stealing you know, things that I could swallow and things that I could inject and just whatever was available. And, uh, and very quickly, I, I got scared that I was going to get caught taking those medicines out of the narcotic cabinet. And so I, I changed my, my point of uh, acquiring drugs. I was scared to drink and go to the hospital, so I, I stayed plugged into these drugs. And I began writing a prescription every day for Percodan, which became, became my drug drug of choice. And I'd write a prescription every day for 36 Percodan, and every day I would take 36 Percodan. And that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. I had an incredible uh, tolerance to, uh, to both alcohol and drugs. Um, I don't think that means anything except that I had an incredible tolerance to alcohol and drugs. Um, I was later when, uh, when the GBI caught up with me and uh, began to question my prescriptions and the amount that I was writing. Uh, they, they wanted to prosecute me to the full extent of the law because they were certain that I was selling the drugs that I was getting, that there was no way that I could take that many. And uh, they had no sense of humor, you know. I, <laughs> and when he asked me how I could possibly take 36 a day, I told him the truth. I said, it's very easy. You take eight at a time. And <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't think that was funny. They, I really don't think they thought it was believable. Um, but but this, is, this is what I did. I did that for about nine months. After about nine months, uh, for whatever reasons, I, I hit a bottom. I became terrified. I was terrified I was going to get caught. I think I was terrified I wasn't going to get caught. Uh, I was lonely, alone, and very afraid, and I knew I was addicted. And as I looked around my life, I realized that I did not have one friend in the city of Dallas, Texas, to turn to, to share my, my problem with, except one, and that was my husband, Jim. And so one evening, when he came home from work, I shared with him the fact that I had become a drug addict, that I would written my own prescriptions, and that I would used his name and narcotic number to obtain them. And I was really ashamed. 
and I was really afraid. And of course, what mostly what I was afraid of was that he wouldn't love me anymore, and that he'd leave me. And I, I was so shocked when he put his arms around me, and he said, "Christy, I don't understand everything that's happened, or why this happened, but I know that you're sick, and I know that there's hope, and we just need to get you help, and then everything can be okay." Well, we know today that the reason he reacted that way was because his father was sober for five years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous before he died. And, uh, and he had married a woman in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, who at that point was about 13 years sober. And, uh, and I, I know, and he knows, that it was through watching his dad recover and watching people in AA at his dad's home that he had hope and he knew it could be okay. Well, the way we sought to get me help was for me to go see a psychiatrist. I mean, I was crazy. So I went to see the psychiatrist. I withdrew from the drugs. And, you know, things got worse. When I, when I finished withdrawing from the drugs and I realized I couldn't cope with what was going on in my life, uh, that's when I turned back to my real drug of choice, which was alcohol. And, uh, and from this point on, I became a daily drinker. And I drank when I opened my eyes in the morning, and I drank the last thing before I went to bed at night. And I did that for the next couple of years. But after I'd been doing that for a couple of weeks or months, I took another look around my life. And I was drinking one night, and I was lonely. And you know how maudlin we get some nights when we're alone and drinking. And, uh, and there I was. I was getting maudlin and feeling real sorry for myself because I had no friends. And here I was in Dallas, and Jim wasn't home. And, and I thought, ah, there might be one other person in this world who understands what's going on with me. And that was my mother-in-law, who was living in Pine Mountain, Georgia, and, as I said, in Alcoholics Anonymous. So uh, with this brilliant idea, I pick up the phone, and I said, all I could get out to her, I was scared to death to tell her what was going on, so all I could say was, Lillian, I need you. And there she was, 700 miles away, and she said, I'll be on the next plane. And by 2 o'clock the next afternoon, Lillian was in Dallas, Texas, sitting in our living room. And I was able to share with her the story of my drug addiction. I was totally incapable of sharing with her the fact that I was drinking a quart a day. But I could share my drug addiction with her and, uh, and share the fear of that. And as I shared that with her, she got this funny little smile on her face. You know how we get when we're about to pounce. <laughs> well, she got that look. And, uh, and I said, why are you smiling? There's nothing funny or happy about this situation. And she said, I'm smiling because we can go to a meeting together. And I don't know why I didn't think of that. I mean, I knew what her life was, but it had not occurred to me that she would take me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And right then, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I'd acted so hastily because I'd had glimpses of Alcoholics Anonymous. Lillian lived in a big southern home up in Pine Mountain, Georgia, with the wide front porch that had rocking chairs lined up along the porch and the ferns hanging. And Jim and I went there as, as often as possible. And whenever we went there, there were always lots of people there. And the rocking chairs were always full. And there was a big coffee pot in the kitchen that was always perking. And there were people in the living room and on the porch, and they were all sitting around talking about things called steps and God and humility and serenity and you know and I was baffled by these people that uh, I you know serenity was not one of my goals in life that's uh, I, I thought what I needed to do was boogie through life not be serene so this this was not real attractive to me to end up in a rocking chair with a cup of coffee in my hand and uh, they had this they had this bad habit Lillian and Joe both had this bad habit of going over to the jail and emptying it out and bringing everybody home to their house. 
And, you know, and most of these people, they'd already, you know, been taking the meetings and they were in recovery. And, you know, and I'd walk in and, and they'd say, you know, we got the jail here tonight. And then I'd do a really stupid thing like say, well, what's he in for? And they'd tell me, you know, like murder. And, and I'd say, oh, you know, it baffled me, totally baffled me. Why is everybody so happy with, with, you know, all this going on? So I knew I'd made a drastic mistake to ask Lillian to come to Dallas, Texas. But she'd come all that way, and I couldn't be rude, so off I went to Alcoholics Anonymous with Lillian. And when we got to that meeting, it was a women's meeting. And I'll never forget it. I, you know, I shared with them that, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous was good for them, but I wasn't an alcoholic. I, I was a drug addict, but I was not an alcoholic. And uh, those wise and wonderful women tried to explain to me that I, I couldn't drink. And uh, I got real indignant, and I said, what do you mean I can't drink? I'll inform you I'm a highly successful social drinker. <laughs> I can drink anybody under the table I want to. <laughs> they were real patient with me, and uh, they, they tried to explain that they knew something about cross-addiction. They knew that, uh, that if my, my, those drugs were taken away, that I was going to turn to alcohol. And, you know, and I knew even then that what they were saying was the absolute truth because it was already happening in my life but I wasn't going to admit it for a million dollars. But Lillian left after a while, and, uh, and her last instructions were for Jim to go to Al-Anon and for me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And for some reason, I kept coming. Now, I didn't stop drinking. I didn't stop drinking for a long time. But I kept coming fairly often. And I think I kept coming because I was scared that my world was going to tumble down around me. And I know I kept coming because I really did want what you had. I just was not willing to go to any length to get it. I mean, I thought drink, stopping drinking was pretty drastic, and uh, and I was just incapable of doing it that time. But what I was doing was I was I was putting up this facade. I was trying to drink and keep myself put together and get you to believe that I wasn't drinking, and uh, you know, and it was a mess. Uh, Y'all tolerated me because I wasn't real disruptive, and uh, and you just let me be and, and let me keep coming back and picking up white chips when things got too hot at home and. Um, but things didn't get better. Things got worse. And in 1980, Jim and I moved to Columbus, Georgia. And I thought I was going to take the geographical cure and be okay. And, uh, and it, y'all, it worked for two days. I drove from <laughs> Dallas to Columbus, and I did real well. And I went in Columbus half an hour before I discovered there was a liquor store three blocks from my house. And I said, you know, it must be divine intervention. It was a drive-through. I could just drive through and get my bottle. <laughs> Uh, that was it was a rough year we moved in June of 1980 and things really got worse as we moved to Columbus I went to a few meetings now I was closer to Lillian and I felt like I had to go so when she checked up on me she could find out I was showing up every once in a while but I was dying and I was losing the ability to keep up this facade to try and keep my life together and, and be a mom to Ray and uh, you know put meals on the table simple things make the bed I, w I was losing the ability to do those, do those things then Christmas of 1980. It was Christmas Eve about 10 o'clock when I'd, I'd put Ray to bed and Jim had gone back out to the hospital for a while that I realized for the first time that I didn't have a single gift for Jim for Christmas. My alcoholism had so consumed me with myself that it had never occurred to me to buy a gift for him for Christmas. And y'all, I love Christmas and I love giving to people at Christmas and it really devastated me that I didn't have anything for him. Um, so I did what any one of us good practicing alcoholics would do. I, you know, said, God, please get me out of this one and I'll never do it again. And then I put on my thinking cap and thought, you know, what do I do? What do I do? Well, 
I started thinking about what does Jim want for Christmas more than anything in this world. And I knew what he wanted was for me to be sober. And so I thought, oh, I can do that. So I sat down at our desk and I got out a piece of paper and I wrote him a note. And the note said, I will go to any lengths. And I folded it up and put it in his stocking. And I poured myself another drink and I went to bed. <laughs> On January 3rd, 1981, um, I hit another bottom. I I'd lost my ability to put up a facade that I was something that I was not, and it was very apparent that uh, that I was drunk, and I was I was drinking round the clock, and I was drinking with an abandon that I thought was going to kill me. So one more time, I called Lillian, and I told her I needed help. She was our Georgia State Assembly Secretary, and she was in Macon at the time, putting out our state newsletter called The Message, and she told me to come down to Macon and be with her. And I went down there, and I spent about four days with her, and I tried to listen to what she had to tell me. I knew, I knew she knew how to get sober. Lillian was one of those people who, who not only could talk the talk, she really walked the walk. And, uh, and she lived this life from the inside out. Uh, it was amazing. She, when she died in 1987, and, uh, and her funeral was standing room only, that people come from all over Georgia and the surrounding states. And the minister stood up there and said, you know, it's my job to save souls. And this woman has saved more than I could ever think of touching. And, uh, and I believe that was true. And that's the kind of woman she was. I was really lucky to have her be a part of my life. And so she shared with me. And I tried to listen and not talk back. And after about four days, she said, it's time to go home and do what you need to do. You know, you've been around long enough. I've been in treatment by this point. I've been educated about our disease. And, you know, she said, you know what you need to do. You got to have a sponsor. You got to have God, and you got to work the steps. Now go home and try it one day at a time. And so I did that, and I I went home. It was on the drive home that I said the first honest prayer that I'd ever said. I was terrified. I got in my car, and I thought, "There's two hours between Macon and Columbus. How am I going to do this?" And that's when I said the first honest prayer that I remember saying, and that was it was very simple. It was, "God, please help me get to Columbus without stopping at a liquor store and having a drink." And, you know, I got home sober. And for me, I knew that was a miracle. That was a really big deal that I hadn't had a drink those two hours. And so I began coming to meetings again. And I tried to get honest. And I tried to work the steps. And, uh, and I asked Lillian to be my sponsor because I didn't trust anyone as much as I trusted her. And there weren't a lot of women in Columbus at that point. And Lillian and I began walking this journey of recovery together. And things got good. You know, the promises came true. As, as I did the footwork, the promises began to come true. And uh, I gave birth to our second daughter, and I became pregnant with my third daughter around the time of my third birthday. And it was right around that time, as I celebrated my third birthday in January of 1984, that something began to change inside of me. Uh, I was very comfortable in my sobriety. I loved my sobriety. Uh, I began to have feelings like I would never drink again because I liked being sober. And, you know, I know today that when you begin having thoughts like that, I mean, I've always been told they were dangerous. I didn't realize why they might be dangerous. You know, for me, I think the day when I began to believe that I might not ever drink again was the day I stopped treating my disease. Because see, if you don't have to worry about something happening, you don't have to treat it to make sure it's not going to happen. And uh, I began having trouble praying. I would pray in the morning, and I felt very blocked. And I'd never felt like that before. And, uh, and it confused me. And Lillian was very sick at this time. Um, she had cancer, and she had some terrible heart problems. And, uh, and I, I thought that I shouldn't burden her with this. 
And somewhere along the line, I'd missed the message in meetings that faith was not a feeling, that faith was an action, and that it was okay if I didn't always feel my faith. I just needed to act on my faith one day at a time. I'd miss that. And when I lost my feeling of faith, I decided that it was because I was pregnant and I was tired and it was no big deal, and I'd get back to it after the baby was born. I did the same thing with my meditation and reading books, and I found myself, and believe me, this is in hindsight, I found myself sitting in meetings, and my body was there, and my mind was someplace else. You know, I was wondering about what was going to happen when the baby was born, or what so-and-so was doing, or maybe what you were wearing. It just wasn't there. And, uh, <coughs> and although bodily I didn't drift away from the program, uh, emotionally and spiritually, I moved a million miles away. But I did something else along that, that path. I failed to tell you I'd moved. And I'd walk into meetings and you'd say, how are you? And I'd say, I'm fine. Everything's going beautifully. You know, and I'd been around long enough that I could put the front up and I could talk the talk and make you believe that everything was okay with me. And six weeks after Jessica was born, I, uh, I decided that she'd had a really restless night the night before. A prescription for Paragard that the doctor had given me in case she got colicky. And I decided she needed some of that Paragard. So I went out to the drugstore and I got it filled. And I never made it home with the Paragard because I drank it in the car. Have any of you all ever drunk Paragard? A few? you got to really want it to get it down. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this is serious stuff. Um, so it'll make you feel good once you get it down. And for a couple of hours, I felt okay. And a couple of hours later, as I kind of began to come to again, I thought, oh, my God. What have I done? What have I done? Well, that voice that I think is inside all of us, and I know lives inside me, started talking to me and said, Christy, it's no big deal. Nobody will ever know. You know, you've been pregnant. You've had a baby. You were tired. You were busy. You were stressed. You deserved a break. You know, a couple of hours out in the ozone layer. No one will ever know. It's no big deal. And, uh, and I believed the voice, and I didn't say a word. And the next day I got up and I realized I had a refill on that prescription. And so back I went to the drugstore and again I didn't make it home with it. And as I came to again, the voice was talking to me, you know, telling me the lies and I was believing them. And, uh, and I believed the lie when it said, that voice said, you know, don't worry, Christy, no more refills on the Paragard. Tomorrow's going to be different. And it was. I was at the liquor store. And, uh, you know, and I was off and running again. And I drank the way I always drank. I drank trying to make you believe I wasn't drinking. And, uh, and I, I put up my front and my facade again. And, uh, and I would drink and try and make Jim believe I was okay. And I would drink and come to meetings and make you believe I was okay. And, you know, I thought I was lonely the first time I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I knew I didn't fit because y'all weren't drinking and I was. And I knew there was something different about that situation. This time, I, I, I mean, I was devastated. Y'all were my family. You were my friends. And, uh, and it was just killing me that I would sit in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and know I no longer belonged. You know, uh, I've, I've heard a few people say that one of the reasons us drunks work so well with each other is because one drunk can't fool another. And, you know, I believe that's not true. We can fool each other. You know, I fooled my home group for four months. No one knew I was drinking. At least if they did to this day, they've never said a word to me. I fooled them. Big deal. I was dying from the disease of alcoholism, you know, and I wouldn't let them in to help me. So it didn't matter whether I could fool you or not. 
it wasn't your problem to figure out whether I was telling the truth or not. You know, it was my problem because I was dying. It was about four and a half months before it occurred to me for the very first time, after having been a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous for three years, it occurred to me for the first time that I could tell you that I was drinking again. I mean, it just kind of blew me away. Uh, it hadn't occurred to me. And, uh, and it occurred to me only, I believe, because it was a Friday afternoon and I was trying desperately to stop drinking by 3 o'clock like I always did on a night when I was supposed to be at a meeting. And I was trying desperately to stop and I couldn't. And I knew I was going to have to do something. And so as I looked around, Lillian was in the hospital again and I didn't feel like I could call her. You know, I'd, what I'd done too was I had, I had judged Lillian, taken responsibility for her. You know, I'd looked at her and decided, well, since she's sick, her problems are greater than mine and therefore I shouldn't burden her with my problems. And in the long run, I mean, her, her problems were life-threatening. That is true. But my problems are my problems. And if I don't address them, they become life-threatening for me too. And, uh, and so I had sold myself short. You know, my pride also wouldn't let me talk to people in there, I think, too, because right before I picked up the drink, because uh, I'd, I would hear myself talking to myself and myself would say, Christy, you can't tell them that, uh, you know, you're not praying, you're not meditating, that you're not enjoying meetings, you're not hearing anything. If you tell them stuff like that, they'll think you're not working a good program. <gasps> Heaven forbid. I wasn't working any program. I don't know what I was worried about. But that's what had kept me quiet was that, that pride, my false pride. So here I was. I'd been drinking for four months, and it finally occurs to me that I can tell you what has happened. There was a couple in the program that Jim and I hooked up with very early in my recovery and that uh, we'd become very, very close with Joe and Libba and uh, had spent many evenings with them, gone a lot of places with them. And uh, Joe was the alcoholic. And I felt like I could call Joe and tell him what had happened to me. So I picked up the phone finally and I called him. And lo and behold, Libba answered the phone. Well, everybody knows Al-Anon can smell booze over the phone and you know and here Liva was Liva's one of my best friends in the whole world and still is but on that day she was an Al-Anon and I had to tell Joe first I had to make a connection with the drunk first I couldn't do it any other way and so when she answered the phone I slammed mine down without saying a word and I paced the room for a while and I decided I needed to call back and then I really got ticked because she answered the phone again. And I slammed the phone down again. And, uh, and I started pacing the room again. And little did I know, while I was pacing the room, Libba was at home turning to Joe saying, Joe, there's some drunk that's trying to get in touch with you. And the next time the phone rings, would you answer it, please? <laughs> and he did. I called back a third time and he answered the phone. And I managed to get out to him what was going on with me. And he said, we'll be right over. And that night, Joe and Libba, our best friends, came over in 12-step, Jim and me. I wanted to get sober. I wanted more than anything in the world to get sober. I know today that what I really wanted more than anything in the world was to get three years sober. You know, I wanted to be where I was. I didn't want to start back at the beginning again. <coughs> but I wanted that. And I came back and picked up my white chip, and I tried. And I couldn't stop drinking. I just couldn't stop drinking. And, uh, and I was baffled and confused and, and feeling pretty hopeless. And about six weeks later, I ended up in the hospital in treatment. And, uh, and it was while I was in treatment, after I 
kind of dried out a little bit, that uh, that I realized that I was really depressed about all this. And, uh, and that depression came, and that depression stayed for a year. It stayed. I stayed depressed and frozen. I, uh, I got out of that hospital after a while, and I drank one more time. And um, to make this a little shorter, I, uh, when I drank, and I was drinking to drink just like I always drank, I, well, I kind of overdid it, and I ended up in an alcoholic coma in the hospital and, um, and, and gym. I wake up in the intensive care unit of the hospital, and Jim is standing on one side of me, and Joe is standing on the other side of me. And, y'all, this is when I knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jim had been to too many Al-Anon meetings. It's, uh, it became real apparent because, you know, I, I just woke up, and there I was, and I knew I was in deep trouble now. And I thought I asked what was a perfectly logical question. It was very simple. I said, what happened? And my dear, wonderful husband leaned down and kissed me on the forehead, and he said, sweetheart, you took one drink. And he turned around and walked away and left me there all night long. And I was really upset. <laughs> I mean, did he think I was stupid? I knew I'd taken one drink. Um, I knew I had. Well, after I survived that escapade, I was, I was afraid that drinking was going to kill me. And so for the next nine months, I stayed dry. And, uh, and I mean, I stayed dry. I was depressed. I was angry. And that's where my depression was coming from. It was all this frozen anger. I was so angry at what had happened. I felt so unique, like I was the only person, you know, who had ever gotten drunk again after they'd been sober. Uh, but I was, I was angry at all sorts of things. I was angry at you because you hadn't saved me. I'd heard so many people talk from the podium who said, you know, they were getting in a bad place and they were getting close to getting drunk. And, uh, and some old geezer, like Cornel there, hi Cornel, that's uh, pulled him over. You know, after the meeting and said, I see what you're doing. And, you know, you're on dangerous grounds. And let me tell you how you can set it straight so you don't have to get drunk. I'd heard about that so many times. And no one had done that for me. And I was bitter and angry about it. Of course, you know, when I got sober and I inventoried all that, the truth of that was, you know, how could you help me when I never showed you where I was? You know, when I was the one walking into meetings saying, everything's okay. You know, let me share with you you know, how I work this step or that step, you know, little Miss AA. You can't help somebody who puts up fronts like, like that. And it's not your job to figure it out. It's my job to bring it to you. That's my job. And, uh, but I was angry at you. That made a lot of sense to me, so I stayed angry at you. I was furious at Jim. Oh, I was furious at Jim. He dug into his Al-Anon program with a vengeance at this time, and he had the audacity to wake up happy in the mornings. Uh, <laughs> It was really disgusting, and uh, it was very difficult to live with, I promise you. And uh, not only was I living with it, and he was doing okay, um, and, you know, and he was doing lots of things with people in the program. Well, you were telling me how well he was doing, and you were telling me how wonderful he was, and how much I had to be grateful for, and what beautiful children I had, and how much I needed to be grateful for them, and what a beautiful home I had, and how I needed to be grateful for that, and all these things I need to be grateful for. And, uh, and Jim was the top of the list because he was a pretty special guy. And I hated you every time you said that to me. Because what I knew that you didn't know about all that was I didn't deserve Jim. I didn't deserve him. I felt like a helpless, hopeless drunk and that I was the scum of the earth and that, you know, and that what I did best was fail at Alcoholics Anonymous and that I, I really felt like I was going to die drunk. And so I stayed angry at him for being happy and you for telling me about it. 
I was angry at God. I really felt like I could be legitimately angry at God. Uh, we talk sometimes in meeting about kind of paying our insurance premiums to God by coming to meetings, you know. So when we get to the rough spots, we have something to fall back on. And I thought, you know, God, I went to lots and lots of meetings and I made lots of coffee and, you know, I worked my steps and boy, you know, I was so righteous. I told God everything I'd done. And uh, where were you, God? I could blame him. Where were you, God? Well, there too, when I inventoried that, you know, I hadn't said a prayer to God in four and a half months when I drank that pair of gark. So who left who? You know, who left who? But I was angry at him. My minister came to see me while I was in treatment. And uh, he walked, when he walked in the door, I said, oh, Bill, if you're here to talk about God, I can't tolerate it today. And he looked me dead in the eye and he said, Chrissy, so you're angry at God? And I said, you bet I am. He said, well, get in line, honey. <laughs> That day, I thought that he was just kind of arrogant. Um, <laughs> today, you know, that means so much to me today. You know, the, the lesson that I heard in that was that God loves me enough to let me get angry. It's okay. And it's okay that I was angry. That sometimes God sends me places that I'm not particularly thrilled about. Um, and that's okay. I don't have to be. I just have to be willing and do what I need to do. Uh, most of all, most of all, I was angry at me. I could not let go of my anger at myself. I, I knew I'd enjoyed my sobriety, and it confused me. I thought I was the biggest hypocrite in the world, that I could just so willingly and willfully give it up. I thought I was a bad person, because I thought if I'd, if I'd said all those things those three years and then I drank again, I must not have meant them to begin with. And so I thought I was a bad person, and all I did was lie. You know, I forgot that I was sick. I forgot I had a disease. I forgot that in the big book it tells us, you know, that we're just granted a daily reprieve based on the maintenance of our spiritual condition, period. And my big crime was is that I stopped taking care of my spiritual condition, and I'm an alcoholic. And if I do not take care of my spiritual condition on a daily basis, I will drink. I did drink, and I will drink again. And it's just as simple as that. But I forgot that, and so I stayed angry at me, and I could not forgive myself. On September the 13th, 1985, I had not had a drink in nine months, and three days before I picked up my nine-month chip. And, uh, and I was angry and I was bitter, because although I hadn't had anything to drink in nine months, nothing was getting better. When I picked up that nine-month chip, I rode home from the meeting and I rolled down my window and I threw it as far as I could. And I said, if this is sobriety, I don't want, I don't want any part of it. And three days later, I was ready to drink. I had to get ready to drink because I truly believed I was going to die if I drank again. And uh, as a matter of fact, I decided to make sure I died if I drank again. And, uh, and so I had to get ready. And on that Friday, I got up and I went to the liquor store. I bought two quarts of vodka. I had already fired my sponsor. I'd fired my therapist. I'd made arrangements for a babysitter to come, and she couldn't come until 6 o'clock that night. So I just got everything ready, and I bought the vodka, and I gathered up the pills that I could find in our home, and I put them in a bag and I was ready to go when the babysitter got there. And I also shook my fist at God. I hadn't spoken to God for a long time because of that anger. And I decided that day that, uh, that I might as well inform God in my arrogance. I would inform God of what I was doing. And, uh, and so I shook my fist at him because of my anger and I said, God, today's the day I'm going to get drunk and God knows I hope I'm going to die. And if you don't want that to happen, you better do something about it. I did that. 
And uh, at 2 o'clock that afternoon, my phone rang. It was Joe. Now, I saw Joe all the time. But Joe called with the simple words, How are you? And he hadn't called and asked me that in a long, long time. I told him how I was. In no uncertain terms, I told him how I was. And Joe said, We're not going to let you go without a fight. And in 10 minutes, he was at my back door, and we sat down in my living room and started talking. And he said, You know, Christy, he said, We're willing to go to any lengths. If you need me to stay here this afternoon, you know, I'll stay. If you need me to, you know, stay this evening, I'll stay. If you need someone to spend the night, we'll call the group. We'll get a woman over here. You know, if you need someone to stay the weekend, we'll call the group. They'll send people in shifts. We can have somebody here with you all the time. Whatever it takes, we're willing to go to any lengths. And, uh, and I looked at him and I said, thanks, but it's too late. And I don't care anymore. And I kicked him out. Now, you know, I was, I was so arrogant to shake my fist at God. I was that arrogant. And he had the grace to send me Joe, and I had the audacity to kick him out. You know, God's grace is infinite, I believe, because that evening at 6 o'clock, when my babysitter came, I kissed my children goodbye. I had a one-year-old child at that time, and I put her up on my lap, and I kissed her goodbye, and I walked out the door. And, y'all, I didn't feel anything. I was so numb, I didn't feel anything. And that's why I didn't want to live anymore. You know, I knew, intellectually, I knew I loved those children, but I couldn't feel anything. I wasn't a part of. I was just dying. I was kind of rotting from untreated alcoholism. And, uh, and I checked into a motel and I started drinking. The big book tells us that there comes a, drink in all, a point in all our drinking careers. When we pick up the first drink, it is no longer predictable what will happen to us. And, uh, and I began drinking that night with the full intention of taking my life after I'd had a few drinks. And, uh, and before I did that, I decided that there were a few things my parents needed to hear before I died. <laughs> now, my parents had never even heard me drunk before or seen me drunk. This was a real revelation to them. But uh, uh, they're pretty bright people. They knew pretty quickly that I was in deep trouble. And, uh, and to make a long story short, and I'm not quite sure to this day how they did it, but uh, um, before I got off the phone with my mother, my father had made some calls into Columbus, Georgia, and, uh, and there were two late women from Alcoholics Anonymous at my motel room door. And, uh, and I ended up back in the treatment center. And Jim decided when I had ended up back in the treatment center I'd been in, in there in Columbus, which is a story in and of itself. It was a psychiatric hospital. That's all I'll say about it. Um, <laughs> Jim decided that even though I might die from the disease of alcoholism, that, um, that I probably needed to go someplace else first, that he wasn't willing to quit trying, and he knew I was incapable of making any logical decisions for myself. And so that was a Friday night. Saturday, he made arrangements to send me to a treatment center in Atlanta, and the arrangements were made, and he planned to take me the ne next afternoon. And Friday, Saturday night, he went to bed, and about midnight, 12.30, the phone rang. And it was a woman named June Duke who lives in Cuthbert, Georgia, who's about 30 years sober and been friends with his father and friends with us for many years. And June was just, he said she was just tripping all over herself, apologizing for calling at that time of night. She said, but Jim, I've, I've agonized over this all day long. I heard what has happened to Christy. I heard you're sending her to treatment. And I just have something I have to say to you, and it may be wrong, but I have to say it. And he said, June, you know, I'll listen to anything you have to say. 
And she said, all I have to say, Jim, is Willingway was good enough for your daddy. Don't you think it's good enough for Christy? And she hung up the phone. Well, Jim heard that message loud and clear, and we both seemed to think that that was God working in our lives. And the next day, he got up and called Al Mooney and made arrangements to take me to Willingway in Statesboro, Georgia. And there are a lot of my Willingway family here in the audience tonight who know what a very special place that is. I got to Willingway, and I was just kind of a shell. I was totally defeated, and I had nothing left to try with. They left me enough to let me stay that way till I could kind of surrender that. And I was finally able to do that on a day when I... I stole a razor blade from the closet and tried to end my own life. And while I was cutting my wrist, I, I realized just very quietly, very simply, you know, no lightning bolts. I just realized I want to live. I don't want to die. I do want to live. And behind that came the thought that if I was going to live, I was going to have to drop the wall of anger. I was going to have to let you back into my life. I was going to have to let God back into my life and that I could do that if I wanted to live. And that night I surrendered. And slowly but surely, you know, I began to get sober. The war was over. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You knew it was over, and it was over, and there was a peace with that. I, I still wanted to drink. I wanted to drink desperately. For two years I wanted to drink, every single day. And, uh, and so I got a lot of practice in surrender. Uh, surrendering the fact that, you know, yes, I want to drink, but it's okay if I don't have a drink today and do what I needed to do. I was terrified when I came home from Willingway that I had used you up. We can use people up in the program, but what I found out is that we can't use up the program, and I had not used up the program. I came home. By this point, I'd asked another woman to help sponsor me. Her name was Diane, and, uh, and I came home to Diane, and I shared my fears with her, and, uh, and she said, Christy, it's going to be okay because let me tell you a story and she said first I want to give you something and she took out a paperweight and in the paperweight was a, a starfish and she put it down in front of me she said I want you to take this and put it in your kitchen where you can see it every day and I'll tell you the story that goes with it and the story was is that there was a man who was on vacation he may have been down here at Myrtle Beach but he was walking down the beach one day and he noticed that thousands hundreds of thousands of starfish were getting washed up upon the beach and the sun was drying them out, and they were dying. And so he began to stoop down and pick up a starfish and throw it back into the ocean and stoop down and get another one and throw it back into the ocean. And as he was doing this, a little boy came up to him and said, Mr., what are you doing? You can't possibly save all these starfish. And, uh, you know, there are hundreds and thousands of them. And he said, I know I can't save them all, but I think this one's worth saving, and so's this one, and so's this one. And that's the kind of love and acceptance I came home to. And y'all held my hand one more time and walked me into sobriety. I, um, like I said, it, 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 wasn't, it didn't come easy, and, uh, but, I, but I stayed willing. And, uh, and I got back into the steps, and I went to lots of meetings. And I, as I think of it today, you know, I, I think about my program, and you know, I try to think about what, what do I do that keeps me sober? And, you know, I know that, that the bottom line is I, I have a willingness to try and practice these principles in all my affairs, which means that the steps are an inherent part of my life. But I also know that, you know, I pray every morning and I meditate each morning and I talk to people and I share with you who I am and where I am and I go to lots of meetings and I sponsor lots of people and I answer the phone a lot and I make coffee 
And I think about all those things that I'm doing to keep me sober, and I think, what's the one thing I'm doing that's really keeping me sober? Is there something I can stop doing? And I can't think of anything that I could stop doing because I'm scared I'll get drunk. So I keep doing all those things, and I'm real grateful for that. My, my sobriety is so different today. Gyms in my lives are so different today because of my drinking again. I thought it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And, uh, and in the end, it's the greatest gift that God gave me. You know, and why I made it back, and there's so many people who slide out the door and don't make it back, I, I can only say is God's grace. But I am infinitely grateful for it. Um, but it changed our involvement. It changed our willingness. It changed my ability to identify with other suffering alcoholics. And, uh, and, and one of the most wonderful things it did, like what Libba said last night, you know, speaking did for her and kind of opening up her life and letting people come and embrace her. I think my drinking again, and, I, I, and that's just what I call it, is drinking, not a relapse, not a slip, because I, I can't stand to get into dramatic semantics. I just got drunk. But my drinking again uh, enabled me to begin opening my home, which I'd never been able to do before. I was brought up in the kind of home where you had to call before you came over uh, so my mom could have everything just right. And there's nothing the matter with it. If, you know, if that's the way you, you choose to live, that's a fine way to live. There's nothing wrong with it. But uh, I, our home began opening up to other suffering alcoholics and, and, uh, and members of Al-Anon, and people began to come over. And Jim and I began bringing in a lot of young people to our home who you know, needed a safe place to go after meetings besides Denny, who need a safe place to come watch a movie, who a lot of times, most of the time, need a place to eat dinner. And, uh, and they show up at our house. And, uh, and we have had some of the most incredible journeys with that happening. It's, uh, it's really exciting. I come home, and there are always three or four cars parked in our driveway because half of Columbus seems to have keys to our house. And as long as they've got the coffee made, we're in good shape. And, uh, and, and I come in, and there they are. And they're comfortable, and my children are comfortable with them. Now, I'll tell you. One of the dangers of doing this is having a 15-year-old daughter and having all these young guys in Alcoholics Anonymous come around your house. <laughs> and uh, they will get attracted to each other. And, uh, and that has happened in our home just recently. And, but we've been able to talk about it. Uh, we've been able to sit down with our daughter and talk about it and with the guy. And, uh, and the relationships are going to be intact, our relationships with each other. Their relationship with each other won't be, but ours will. <laughs> it's dangerous. But, but we're talking, and we're okay, and I, and I believe we're going to be okay. We have, right now we have a, a young man living with us who's in the process of going through a rather painful divorce, and it caused a lot of financial difficulties. and. So Tim's been living with us for about two and a half months, and, uh, and that's been a lot of fun. He's just kind of become a member of the family. But there have been a lot of other people in and out who needed a bed to stay at. And if it's a man, we just put him in the room with Tim. And if it's a woman, he moves out onto the couch. Finally, one night, our 11-year-old daughter went to the computer and printed up a sign that was a guest sign-in sheet for our guest room. <laughs> so everyone would sign in when they got there. And, uh, and that, the sheet is full. It's been up about five, six weeks, and it's full. But that's real, real joyous. Uh, we had another young man who came through a couple of weeks ago. Um, stopped, he was moving from one state to another, and he stopped at our house to spend the night. And he sat down at the kitchen table and leaned back and said, Well, it's official. I'm homeless. And my daughter said, Yep, and look where he ended up. 
that's our home. She also says that if we get rezoned to be a halfway house, that we could take a lot off on our taxes. But it's a uh, it's a pretty incredible way to live. That uh, that I can I can have all these people in and out of our home, and uh, and I'm comfortable, and I'm just me. You know, whether I have my makeup on or not, whether I'm you know crying about one of my own problems or or not, it's really joyous, and uh, and I'm very very grateful for it. Um, about five years ago, when these young people started hanging out at our house, we asked two of the young men who were staying with us if uh, if they wanted to have a New Year's Eve party and invite all the young people and program over to our house to celebrate New Year's. And they said, yeah, that'd be great. And uh, and they went out and found these huge speakers, and they brought them into our living room. We cleared out the furniture, and we went and bought a bunch of soft drinks and snacks. And on New Year's Eve, after all those young folks had been to a, a meeting, they all came over to our home, and we ushered in the New Year's. We just boogied all night long and toasted each other at New Year's and hugged and kissed. And about 1 o'clock that morning, there were maybe 13 of us left at our house. And one of the kids said, let's have a meeting. And we all said, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's have a meeting.